We're continuing on today in this series in Genesis, and I hope you have been following along in this. If you haven't, I would encourage you to go back and listen to some of the messages that Pastor Chad's been preaching. Genesis is a book of beginnings, as you've been hearing. It's the first of everything. The first sun, the first moon, the first trees, the first plants, the first animals, the first birds, the first human couple. As you saw last week, the first fall, where sin entered into the world. And then when you get to Genesis chapter 4, where we're going to be looking today, you see the first human beings being born of a woman. And you also see the powerful effect of what sin does in creating the first murder. And the effects of what you're learning in the book of Genesis help us to understand what's happening in the world today. And the same answers that God was giving to Cain and Abel and Adam and Eve back then is the same answers he's giving today if we have ears to hear it. Because God is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And so these things are not just a story from the past. This is history. This is God's word. This is what he is speaking to us today. And so when you get to Genesis chapter 4, if you have your Bibles, I'd like to read for you, um, beginning in verse 1. And uh, it was fun having the kids in here. In fact, if you were to go over and ask the kids about Genesis, they can tell you sometimes more than you want to hear. I was reading a couple stories about a couple of kids. Uh, Sarah Ames wrote this in Today's Christian Reader. She said, my seven-year-old daughter Jessica is a deep thinker when it comes to theological questions. Recently, we discussed why bad things happen sometimes. If you were listening to Pastor Chad last week, you know the answer to that. So rereading the story of Adam and Eve, and we talked with her about how sin came into the world. Later that week, Jessica was ill, had to stay at home from school. Feeling miserable, she told me, if only Adam and Eve hadn't eaten that fruit, I wouldn't be sick. But before I can answer, she added, but of course, if they hadn't eaten it, we'd be sitting here naked. <laughs> I was reading a piece by uh, Ellen Cowan. She put this in also in Christian Reader. <laughs> After telling a class of four to seven-year-olds the story of Adam and Eve, I began to quiz them. What was Eve's punishment for disobeying God, I asked. A bright-eyed girl raised her hand. She said, Eve had to crawl on her belly and eat dirt for the rest of her life. <laughs> Kids have a, an amazing perspective on the Bible because they believe what it says. We should too. They may not always put the details together correctly, but with God's help, we can. And so today, I'd like us to look at this tragic story that also gives us great hope about who Jesus is and what he's doing today in the world. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. I'm reading from the NIV. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. 
Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel, attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you're under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will, be no longer, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land, and I'll be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Heavenly Father, it didn't take long for the pervasive power of sin to be able to reach its tentacles throughout this first family. And what looked like a hopeless trajectory for the human race will end up being something that will bring about a greater story, a greater deliverance, a greater Adam, who will be the answer to all of these things that every human being needs. So God, I pray today, as we open up this word, if there's anyone here today who is not absolutely sure of their relationship with God, not absolutely sure that they have a Savior from sin in the person of Jesus, not absolutely sure of what the significance of this Advent season really is, then I pray today you will open their hearts to the truth as only the Holy Spirit can do. And I pray that if there are those here today who have struggled with sin to the point that they feel there will never be any hope for them, I ask today, God, you will help them to see the hope that is offered in Jesus Christ. And for the rest of us, no matter how devoted to Jesus we are, we are still struggling with the sin problem, but it has been overcome in the person of Christ. So I pray you'll give us hope and encouragement today as we open up this word, ages old in its story, but as powerful in its presence as it's ever been. And we thank you, God, for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, I also want to say, too, speaking of Thanksgiving, I don't want to forget this. We had the joy of having my wife's brother with us this weekend, where we don't get to see as much as we like. My wife, Carla, is right down there. She's the beautiful girl behind the black mask. And right next to her is her brother, Dave. I'm so glad, Dave, you could be with us. Thanks for blessing our, our weekend. You know, sin is pervasive like an ivy vine. Carla and I live in the same cul-de-sac for the last 38 years. Behind our house, there are seven neighbors that we have gotten to know over the years. Every time a fence blows down, we get to evangelize and share Christ as we rebuild the fence. We're always praying for the winds to come. Anyway, one of our neighbors planted an ivy vine in their backyard. And one day, I noticed a little green shoot coming out from under the fence. And I thought, neat. 
free green for this barren hill. I don't have to plant it. This is marvelous. So I left it alone. Big mistake. The vine grew under, over, and through the fence, cracking the boards. The weight of that vine eventually pushed it in. I had to replace it. It started growing across the back of the hill and up over our trees and choking the life out of them. And But when it started growing down towards our tool shed in the back, I said, enough is enough. So I got a hedge trimmer, a hatchet, and a, and a gallon of Agent Orange Jungle Killer, or whatever it was. <coughs> and I went out and attacked that invader. And when it died, I ripped it out with joy. And every time now a little shoot appears under that fence... I'm nuking that thing, man. I don't even want it to come near my yard. I want to destroy it before it has a chance to grow. <laughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I've had a cold <coughs> this last week. <coughs> it's not COVID. I've had COVID. Believe me, this is not COVID. Uh, <coughs> so I'm sorry. I can't help the tickle. I don't know if there's something. There's a little bottle of water or something I could grab. Turn around. Oh, it's coming. Okay. You know, I'm bad in enough speaker without all these descriptions, with all these distractions. Anyway, that vine, the point was, the vine grew quietly on the other side of the fence. It even looked desirable when I first saw it. But over time, it had a pervasive power. It started taking over everything. Thank you. And destroying things in its path. Sin is a lot like that vine. Thank you. Sin resides quietly within. By the way, this is a message Satan doesn't want you to hear, I'll guarantee you. Sin resides quietly within. It looks harmless when it first appears. It never shows its full destructive power. In fact, over time, even Christians become very comfortable with it. But left unchecked, it will grow and spread until its pervasive power controls and destroys everything it touches. This was the lesson the earth's first family had to learn in a very real and painful way. And it's a lesson that we're still needing to learn, even today. Adam and Eve and their two boys were about to experience the pervasive power of sin. It tells us in chapter 4, verse 1, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. These words that she spoke can be taken in a couple of different ways. Either God helped me acquire a man, or now I have, like God, brought forth a man. It's hard to tell exactly which way she was saying it, but whatever it was, She was recognizing the significance of God's hand and bringing about the first human beings to be born of a woman. She named her firstborn Cain, which sounds like the Hebrew word for brought forth or acquired. Later, and that word later implies a significant passage of time, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Eve knew apparently the significance of the birth of her firstborn, But her joy over time in that gap began to wane, apparently. She was giving way to the reality of the vanity and the emptiness of life that was beginning to take shape 
under the mantle of a fallen world in sin. Which is reflected in the naming of her second son, Abel. Literally means vanity or emptiness. Which may also have been a foreshadowing of his early and very untimely death. But the events that unfold with Cain and Abel show how even early on the destructive power of sin was becoming pervasive in the human race and how sin would lead to the shedding of innocent blood. It's a lesson that was important to learn then. It's an important important lesson to be learned now, which is why God wants all people to know about the pervasive power of sin. Of sin. So what do we learn? What do we need to know that God has given to help us in this? First, the threat of sin's pervasive power already resides in the human heart. It's lurking there. But secondly, the remedy for sin's pervasive power lies in the doing of what is right, God said. So the threat of sin's pervasive power resides in the human heart. Genesis 4, verse 1. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil in the course of time. Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions, from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. The pervasive power of sin works in the human heart through a thing called temptation. I was reading a piece some time ago by Brian Craig Larson. He's the editor of an online magazine called PreachingToday.com. And in it, he said, temptation is always seductive. And so we can hardly have too many reminders of Satan's purpose in it. And he said, recently, I had a simple reminder. I was at a party over lunch with a dozen of my fellow workers. It was a warm Chicago day, and we had the windows open wide. Soon a bee found its way in, and after buzzing near me, it landed on some food on the table. One of my colleagues, a few chairs away, took hold of an empty bottle of sparkling grape juice and put the mouth of the bottle near the bee. When she did that, I expected the bee to be startled and fly away for its own safety, as a butterfly might do. But instead, without a moment's hesitation, the bee flew to the mouth of the bottle as if it had done this a hundred times before, and it climbed inside the narrow opening. Immediately, my colleague put the cap on the bottle and screwed it shut. The bee spent the rest of our party drinking at the bottom of the bottle. And as far as I know, the bee was never released. What was my colleague's purpose in luring the bee into the bottle? Was she concerned about the bee? Wanting it to enjoy our hospitality and have plenty to drink? No, she dislikes bees. Her purpose was capture and control. The bee had unknowingly flown into a trap. And Larson went on to say, when Satan incites us to indulge in the pleasures of the world in a manner that oversteps God's commands, what is his purpose? Is he concerned that we might miss out on the good things of God? No, he despises humans. 
His purpose is capture and control. We must never forget that when we listen to him, we are walking into a trap. Why would a bee knowingly walk into a trap that will ultimately lead to its death? Because a bee is naturally attracted to sugar. And its desire for what is natural to the bee soon overpowers any sense of danger. It has no idea it's walking into a trap. But the same thing happens to human beings. When Satan uses our sin nature and tendencies to lure us into a trap. The destructive power of sin that entered the human race through Adam and Eve was already showing its presence in the sin nature of their first offspring. It says in verse 3, In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering. Fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. You see, Cain and Abel are worshiping Yahweh, Jehovah God. Whether Adam and Eve knew the covenant name of God or Moses used that because he knew the covenant name of God is not certain. But one thing we know for sure, Cain and Abel were bringing an offering to Jehovah God, the creator. Cain grew crops, so he brought the fruit of the soil. Abel raised flocks, so he brought the fat portions of the first fruits of his flock. God looked with favor on Abel and his offering but not on Cain and his offering. The word favor is a very interesting word. It's a Hebrew word, compound word, that means to look not only at the offering, but God was looking at the offerer. Which is why it says God looked with favor, respect, or regard for Abel and his offering, and Cain, and not on Cain and his offering. God was looking at both, the offer and the offering. You know, that happens today every time you present an offering to God of any kind. Be it service or money or devotion or prayer, God looks at the offerer as well as the offering. Now, many have assumed or suggested that Abel and his offering was accepted and Cain's rejected because Abel's offering involved a blood sacrifice and Cain's didn't. But it's hard to build a case for that biblically. In fact, it doesn't even appear the case at all. You see, there were two vocations given to Adam after the fall that you heard about last week. One was agriculture. The other was husbandry or tending of flocks or herds or animals. Both were acceptable to God. In fact, God sanctioned the first fruits of the crops and the first fruits of the flock to be equally acceptable as certain offerings. God didn't make a distinction at that point. You need a blood offering for atonement, but you can make an offering of either. It's possible Cain's offering was not the first fruits, but maybe simply an afterthought. But the problem appears not to be with Cain's offering. The problem appears to be what was going on in Cain's heart. You see, God could see that Abel's offering was given by faith to please God, while Cain's offering came from a heart seeking favor for himself. And when Cain didn't get the favor of God that he was seeking, his reaction only revealed the evil that was in his heart. 
That's why it says in verse 5, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor, so Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Very angry. He was literally filled with a word we don't use very often, wrath. Not wrath, wrath. Wrath is an extended form of anger and, and, and a, whole, a whole word in itself. But wrath means to be filled with incensed or outraged or vengeful. You want to take action against someone. Sin had already corrupted Cain's heart that he thought he could bring an offering to God and earn God's favor. And that's significant. Because you see, Cain was seeking to come to God to gain God's favor by works. But Abel was coming to God by faith. How do we know that? Hebrews 11 verse 4. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he's dead. Cain and Abel would have been well acquainted with their parents' journey through sin and their tragic story. Abel comes by faith in an offering to bless God and to please him. By faith. But Cain came came to curry the favor from God by his good works. You see, the pervasive power of sin was working in Cain's heart, causing him to put on the pretense of worshiping God, but in reality, he was worshiping himself. He wasn't coming to God for the sake of God. He was coming to God for what he could get. And he wanted God's favor, and he thought he could earn it. I'm going to bring God an offering. But God saw the duplicity of that pretense as evil in Cain's heart. How do we know that? 1 John chapter 3, verse 12. Where John said, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his own brother. Because his own actions were evil and his brother's were righteous. Well, what were the evil actions? He only brought an offering to God. The evil action was he was doing it out of works to earn favor from God for himself. He was not coming to offer anything to God. And God said it was evil. It's the same kind of pretense and duplicity when people come to God not by faith to please God, but by works hoping to earn God's favor that Paul told Titus to warn the people about. Remember in Titus 1? He said, to the pure, all things are pure. Titus 1.15. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, that's Cain, nothing is pure. No offering they can bring is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, which is what Cain did. But by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Go back to Hebrews 11.4. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he's dead. Abel still speaks. Well, what is he speaking? 
that the righteousness that God talks about, the righteousness we need to have a relationship with God, that righteousness does not come by works. That righteousness comes by faith alone. Abel came to God by faith, and God called that righteousness. And Abel's still speaking today. You can't earn your favor with God. You can only come to God through faith. And he will impart to you the righteousness of Christ when you believe. Cain was trying to circumvent that whole thing. That's why it says in Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. That's why it goes on to say in Hebrews 11, verse 6, And without faith it's impossible to please God. Cain was trying to please God without faith. You can't do it. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Don't miss that. He's not rewarding those who earnestly seek what he gives. He's rewarding those who earnestly seek him. When we claim to be worshipers of God, but God is not really the one we worship, then we've got idols in our life somewhere. Someone or something has to have first place in our worship. And if it isn't truly God, it will be something else. No matter how much we may come to church at times and say what we say, God knows if he is number one and we worship him only or whether or not there is an idol in our heart. Cain's idol was the worship of self. He wanted God's favor. God called such duplicity of heart spiritual prostitution. In fact, when you pretend to worship God, but your real motive is to earn God's favor or to worship some false idol you want for yourself, he calls that spiritual prostitution. When you slap God's name on our self-worship, That's using God's name in vain. And God will expose it every time. Maybe not right away, but he will expose it every time. Do you remember back in the Old Testament, the book of Hosea? Hosea was called to preach the word to an adulterous northern kingdom called Ephraim or Israel. And also to an adulterous southern kingdom called Judah. Adulterous because they were all professing to be followers in the name of the Lord, but they were worshiping every kind of idol you could imagine. In the name of the Lord, Yahweh. So God said, Hosea, I want you to tell him this. Hosea 5, verse 3. I know all about Ephraim. Israel is not hidden from me. Ephraim, you now turn, have now turned to prostitution. Israel is corrupt. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. A spirit of prostitution is in their heart. They do not acknowledge the Lord. On their lips they did, but they weren't really acknowledging him. So Israel's arrogance testifies against them. The Israelites, even Ephraim, stumble in their sin. Judah also stumbles with them. So now look what God says. When they go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, they will not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. See, you can't just bring your flocks and herds and say, I'm going to present God an offering because I can sense something's not right here and I'm going to buy my way back. 
that duplicity he won't accept. That was in Cain's heart. He thought he could come bring an offering to God and gain God's favor in competition over his brother. You cannot, you cannot live in that kind of duplicity. God sees it. Cain is the earliest example of people who profess to know God, even to worship God, even to attempt to serve or offer to God, but the God they really serve is self. And Satan will supply a host of idols to make you happy if self is the God you serve. But God will expose it. I remember reading a piece once by D.A. Carson. He was a prophet, I think Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He said, a generation who lustily sings God's praises while lustily sleeping around had better expect the blistering judgment of God because God is holy. And he will not allow that kind of duplicity in his presence. God loves us. We all sin. We all make mistakes. I do too. But God knows the difference between a guy like Cain who is trying to buy off God with his offering totally by works versus Abel who came to offer God something to please him by faith. You see, the problem was not with Cain's offering. The problem was in Cain's heart. He brought an offering to God in hopes of benefiting himself. It's works righteousness. And when God exposed the duplicity, his response only revealed what God could already see. The sin that was in his heart. The sin that cannot be atoned for by works. It can only be atoned by faith in Jesus Christ. No wonder. Abel still speaks. And not only that the threat of sin's pervasive power resides in the human heart, but the remedy for sin's pervasive power is for us to do what is right. Moses wrote in Genesis 4, verse 6, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. But you must rule over it. The importance of doing the right thing. I remember years ago on a Sunday morning, I got done speaking. Came down off the stairs there, and I was waiting at the bottom to talk to people. And this young man came up to me. He looked like he was in his early 20s, fresh out of college. And he looked very troubled. And I said to him, What's wrong? You look troubled. He said, I have a problem. I don't know what to do. And I said, well, what's your problem? He said, I'm, I'm married, and I'm a high school teacher. And I've fallen in love with one of the graduating seniors, and I don't know what to do. And I said, are you a Christian? He said, yep. I said, oh, then your answer is easy. He said, it is? I said, yeah. I'm going to ask you one question. It'll solve your problem. What's the right thing to do before God? You know what he said to me? Wow. I never looked at it that way. I said, I know you didn't. Because the evil one that's crouching at your door is about ready to have you, and he doesn't want you to do the right thing. But God wants you to do the right thing.
I don't know what he chose. I never saw him again. That wasn't what he was wanting to hear that morning. You know, it's basically the same thing that God told Cain when he saw the sin lurking in Cain's heart. God told Cain, if you want to be accepted, then do what's right. Verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Why is your face changed like that? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. If you do what is right. If you do what is well, God's telling you. And by the way, the word he used there implies not just amend your ways or make a better choice. That's not what he's talking about. In fact, the word there is a, a, a wonderful Hebrew word that leaves you with this understanding. Make your course line up with that which is pleasing to God and acceptable in his sight. Don't just make another choice that you want to make. Make the choice that I want you to make. Make a choice that will be in line with my will and acceptable in my sight. That's what God was telling Cain. The word acceptable or accepted literally means to be raised up in rank or character to a higher level than where you are, to a deeper character than what you have. In other words, God's telling Cain, if even now you will do well by doing what is right and pleasing in my sight, then you'll be raised up in rank and character to be more in line with the man I created you to be. You'll be like your brother Abel. If you don't do right or well, sin is crouching at your door. And it desires to have you. People, this is a scary section to read. That word crouching is like an animal on all fours. Crawling toward its prey and ready to pounce at the first opportunity. Man, I've watched cats do this in our backyard. You've seen it down on all fours and they are moving like this towards a bird that's out there in the backyard. And I'm sitting there watching this unfold and that bird's just... And I'm thinking to myself, bird... You better change course here in a hurry or you're going to be somebody's lunch. God told Cain, sin is crouching at your door, ready to spring. You're the prey. You know, if, if God allowed people to see more often or if Satan would come along and say, you know what, I'm about to prey on you, I'm not sure that many people would fall so easily. But he hides all of that. So what does God tell Cain? It desires to have you. Sin desires to have you. Literally, it is stretching out to take you. It's reaching toward you right now, Cain. Which is why the Apostle Peter warned in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. 
People, this wasn't meant to scare us. This was to make us alert and sober-minded. All the believers in the world are going to go through this. Satan hates humanity. He hates believers. He's constantly looking for someone to devour. And we often, because we take sin too lightly at times, set ourselves up to be his prey. God told Cain, it's crouching. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. You must master it. Sin must not rule over you, Cain. You must rule over it. Peter said, you've got to resist him, the evil one, and stand firm in the faith. God was telling Cain, yield your heart to God. Yield it to me right now, Cain. And I will give you what you need to master sin in this moment. You cannot do it on your own, but I can do it through you. I can do it in you. I will do it for you. Put your faith in me, Cain. Align yourself with my will right now. And you'll rule over this. You know, sin has a process. Sin has a process that begins with temptation, but it ends in death. But if you know the process, with God's help, you can rule over it. It doesn't have to have you. Before I was a Christian, I couldn't stop sinning. I tried. I became disgusted with my own life. But I would try to clean up one area, and I would break out in another. There was no consistency. Consistency. When the Bible says we were powerless, that's what it means. But when I became a Christian, one of the great joys was to learn with God's help, I don't have to sin anymore. I still do at times. And so do you. But I don't have to give in to it. There's a way out. And part of that way out is understanding how sin works and where to cut it off. It's what James wrote about in James 1 verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. People, temptation is not a sin. Temptation is a capacity to have needs or wants, which either God or the tempter can supply. C.S. Lewis once wrote, it's not wrong to have desires. It's not wrong to want to be happy. It's not wrong to want to be pleased. That's God-given. The problem is not, he said, that we desire too much. The problem is we desire too little. We allow our desires to be satisfied with drink and sex, fame or fortune, when our highest desire, happiness and pleasure, should be in God alone. We settle for far too less. We're satisfied too easily, which is why we fall prey to Satan's temptations. Satan appeals to our evil desires or good God-given desires that he says you can be satisfied in those things a different way, different than God's way, my way, 
Satan knows that if a person is not fully satisfied in God, then they will be far too easily able to chase after the things he offers as a substitute for God. So James said, each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he's dragged away and enticed. These are very colorful words in here. Dragged away is lured away by appealing to our evil desires. The word enticed is literally baited. Satan seeks to get you to chase something you want his way by baiting you. Why does a fish chase the the hook? Because there's bait on the hook. Why does a human chase after sin? Because there's bait on the hook. So you get enticed because you want what you want, but rather than God's way, Satan convinces you God's withheld this from you. Or you can get this a whole lot easier than what he's offering you. Then James said, after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Wow. After after desire is conceived... You know those times when you have something in your head, boy, it'd be nice to do that, but you know initially, eh, it's not the best. But it stays in there. You keep mulling it over. This is what happens over and over and over again in the whole affair complex. Ooh, I want that. So you begin mulling over in your your mind the desire of what that would be like. It can happen if it's chasing something you want to eat that you shouldn't. Or maybe buying a car you don't need. But whatever it is, the desire gets in there. And so you start thinking in this process of conception, how can I do this thing? How can I get what I want? And how can I justify doing it? You know the interesting thing about Satan and sin? It will always let you see the benefit of what you want. It will never let you see the consequence of your sin until it's too late. So, that desire conceives and it gives birth to sin, James said. Conception occurs. And there are no stillbirths in regards to sin. When that desire is conceived, it will give birth to sin. You will do it. You act against God and his word, even believing at times that what you're doing is what God wants. As a pastor, over the years, I've worked through so many couples in affair scenarios. I'm just using this one example. And when I approach either the husband or the wife to ask them, what in the world are you doing? You know what I've been told more times than I wanted to hear? Well, I know God is not seeing this as wrong because he wants me to be happy. Really? Are you so far gone that you think you can sin like this and you're pleasing God somehow? Conception of the desire gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, literally when it's finished its work, you see what sin starts, it finishes. Sin is born, but that's only the beginning. 
the pervasive power of sin will grow to finish its work. What's that work? It gives birth to death. Separation from God. Physical, spiritual, eternal separation. The destruction of all that's good and what it leaves you, what it leaves you is the shame and the guilt that sin always breeds. You see, the time to resist, the way to rule over sin's pervasive power is in the moment that temptation comes. You can go God's way or Satan's way, you should tell yourself. Here I am, I have a desire. Is this desire from God? If it isn't from God, it's evil. But even if it's from God, does God want it now? And what way does he want this pursued? How does he want this thing fulfilled? The time to overcome sin's pervasive power is the moment temptation comes to your life. Am I going to do this God's way or am I going to do it my way? Satan's way. God offered Cain a way of escape. Do what is right. But he didn't take it. And Satan pounced and took him. Remember what John said in 1 John? Cain belonged to the evil one. And he was dragged away. He was enticed. Conception occurred. Sin was born. It fully grew and gave birth to death. So in verse 8, now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. See, he had already conceived of doing this. He was so jealous of his brother Abel, angry at God, angry that Abel would be seen with favor and not him. He's the older brother, by the way. So come on, little brother, let's go out to the field. And while they're in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you're under a curse and driven from the ground which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. The first murder. When sin is conceived, it gives birth to death. Abel was killed. Cain was separated from God and driven away under a curse. And the pervasive power of sin is still doing its work in humanity. That's why it says in Romans 5 verse 12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. See, it all began with Adam and Eve, but it's already spread to Cain and Abel. Abel overcame that by righteousness, by faith, the righteousness that that comes by faith. And Cain tried to do it by works. God offered Cain a way out, but he didn't take it. God offers us a way. A way out of sin and temptation. To come to God by faith and, like Abel, to do the right thing. Ultimately, It's to come to the right way. It's to come to the only way.
His name is Jesus. Relationship with Jesus Christ who died to save us from the penalty of sin. People, if you've been a Christian a while, you've heard these verses before, but I want you to hear them again today. Because we're coming into an Advent season that the reason Jesus came was to reveal God and to redeem man. My sins put Jesus on the cross. And so did yours. And yet he came, born of a virgin, to live a sinless life so that at the right time he could go to the cross. He had no sin of his own. But it was sin killing Jesus that day. He took my sin and your sin to the cross and he died with it. He paid the price. They took him down from a cross, they buried him in a tomb, and three days later he rose again. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He is the way of God. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Philip and Callie led us in that song this morning. Not created, begotten. This would be God's son. Romans 3.23 and 24, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. People, until you admit your sin and your need for Christ, you can't be saved. I ask people all the time, do you know the Lord? Oh, yeah. He's my Savior. I said, what did he save you from? A bad marriage, a bad life, poor finances, ill health. What did he save you from? The answer is, he saved me from my sin. Romans 6.23, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, for those who are in Christ, God has given away out of temptation and sin if we will only choose it. This is why the writer of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews 12, verse 22, describing the old covenant and the new one, the blood of sacrifices of the past and the blood of Jesus. Listen to what he said. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You, meaning believers, have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. This is what's waiting for you. To the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirit of the righteous made perfect. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus' sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What is the better word that Jesus' blood speaks? Well, what was Abel's blood speaking? God told you right there. Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. That word cries is a word meaning cries out for justice, for action, for restitution, for sin to be made right. 
It was the same cry of the faithful in the future, in Revelation 6, who had been killed and martyred for their faith and testimony in Jesus. What was their cry? They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Justice for these wrongful deaths to be made right. But the sprinkled blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cried out to God from the ground for justice, vengeance, and judgment. But Jesus' blood cries out from the cross for mercy, grace, and forgiveness. The sprinkled blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And when we are tempted, God offers us a way out so we can stand up under it and we can avoid sin. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. People say all the time, God will never give you more than you can handle. That's not true. God will always give you more than you can handle. So you have to look to him as we are intended to do. But God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. Every time you're tempted, God is right there offering a way out. If you'll only see it, if you'll only take it, if we'll only turn to him. The way out is always to look to Jesus by faith, to cry out to God, to trust and obey him, and he will provide the way out. But because we are sinners by nature and by choice, we still sin, and God has provided a better word, a better blood, that cleanses of all sin. People drink in what God said to the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there's no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth or live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us of all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. People, that is good news for an old sinner like me. It's good news for old sinners like you. In Jesus, we have been delivered from sin's penalty. In Jesus, we are overcoming sin's power. And someday in Jesus, we'll be removed from sin's presence. It will be no more. Jesus has done that for us. Cain was offered a way to come to God. He didn't take it, so a curse fell on him. He would be driven from the land. A restless wanderer on the earth. A curse has fallen on all of us who sin. But the good news is, 
that Jesus has reversed the curse. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it's written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He has redeemed us back from the curse when we put our faith in him. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Even in the midst of all of this, God offered Cain an amazing grace. Cain said, man, I'm going to go out there, future descendants are going to come and kill me. By the way, people have asked, where would those future descendants come from? Adam lived 930 years. He saw eight generations of his family. Do you know Lamech, the great, 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 great grandson of Adam? Lamech, that great, 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 great son or grandson of Adam, was 83 years old when Adam died. All those people listed up to the point of Lamech. Lamech was Moses' dad. All those people all the way up to Lamech, Adam lived to see them all. That's why it says in Genesis 6 when you get there that humanity was spreading over the earth. And Cain said, some of those descendants are going to hear this story. They're going to hear what I did to Abel, and they're going to kill me. God said, not so. I'm going to do an amazing act of grace, Cain. I'm going to put a mark on you. No one knows what the mark is. But if anybody touches you, Cain, they're going to die seven times over. Their vengeance will be seven times as great. An amazing act of grace, even in the midst of all of that judgment. God is a gracious God, but sometimes that grace runs out. God told Cain in Genesis 4-7, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? In Christ, we who were once lost in sin and under a curse have now been loved. We've been redeemed. And we've been accepted. Do you remember that word, accepted by God? It means to raise up in rank or character. If you're trusting Jesus Christ today as your Savior, truly trusting him, worshiping him as Lord and God, He's raising you up more than you know. In fact, for those who trust in Jesus and have been imparted his righteousness, we are being raised up in rank and character that one day you're going to be just like him. John said, and we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The threat of sin's pervasive power already resides in the human heart. The remedy of sin's pervasive power lies in doing the right thing. It's coming God's way. And that way is Jesus. Those who trust in the Lord will, will not be disappointed. In fact, one of Jude's great doxologies for all who trust in Jesus is the guarantee of what's to come. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all ages, now, and forever. And all God's people said,
Father, thank you for this word. As we are learning from Pastor Chad, Genesis is not an ancient book of a, of a far-off story. This is very relevant to how we're living today. And the things that you have unfolded in the lives of people like Cain and Abel and many more that we'll be learning about in the days to come are stories meant for our edification, meant for our learning, meant for our encouragement, meant to help us in making our decisions today. Lord, we don't need to be convinced that the great problem of sin already lurks in the human heart. Jeremiah said, the heart is desperately sick. Who can know it? But we also know that you're a God who has given us a way, the right way. And if we will choose in those moments to align ourselves with you, we can not only overcome sin's great penalty of death, but we can overcome the constant power that sin tries to play over us. We can rule over it in the power of Jesus Christ. We don't have to give in to this stuff anymore. And when we do, when we fall, when we're weak, and we all are, we can come to you, the God who has paid the great price that we might be forgiven and get things right. And Lord, I simply want to say thank you for what you've done. Thank you for what you're doing. And thank you for helping us to learn from these great truths from people of the past. And while we're all here today, I just want to take one minute to just ask this simple question. Do you know that you are really following Jesus Christ? Do you know that you are trusting him as the only way, the only truth, and the only life that can save you? Have you in any way struggled with sin to the point that you tried to buy back some favor from God? Or have you truly yielded your, Christ, your life to Christ and to God? The great story of Christmas is that Jesus came. He died, he paid for our sin, he was buried and he rose again. And he's still offering hope and forgiveness and eternal life to those who will believe and receive. Salvation is still by faith. You can't earn it. Abel still speaks. So if you're here today and you're not sure you've ever invited Christ into your life, then ask him today. Just say to him, Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner. And I believe that it is my sin that separates me from you. I believe you love me and that's why you came for me. To die on that cross in my place for my sins. And when my penalty was paid, I believe you were buried. But three days later, you rose again, victorious. You conquered sin, death, and the grave, and you're alive. And so, Lord Jesus, I ask you to come and live in me. Grant to me your righteousness that I could never earn. Make me a child of God, that I may follow you the only way. If you ask that of God or anything like it, he knows your heart. He knows the heart that truly believes, and he knows the heart that doesn't. If you believe today and are trusting Christ and him alone, you are saved from your sin. I want to encourage you if you made a decision like that in any way, or even if you do it tomorrow or the next day or whenever, call the church. 
Let Pastor Chad know, or Pastor or Phil, or any of the folks here who are part of the staff. Let them know. They want to follow up with you. This could be the best Christmas season ever as you come to understand why Jesus came. And maybe if you've been struggling with sin, you're wondering, have I gone so far that I can't ever get out? I'm a Christian, but I've gone too deep. You haven't. It's never too late to repent. It's never too late to say, God, I'm sorry. I fell prey to the trap, and I don't want to be in it anymore. So God, deliver me. And in the future, when that temptation comes, grant me in those moments to see you, to reach out to you, so that sin can no longer reach out and take me. Father, I want to thank you that these powerful options are available. I pray today you'll help all of us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, to realize we live as we learned last week in a fallen world. Satan will always try to have us. But thank you, God, that we can be like Abel and not like Cain. May we always choose the right. And we'll thank you for all of your help. In Jesus' name, amen.